The repatriation of art and artefacts to and from our cultural institutions is one of the main issues up for discussion at this year's annual New Zealand Art Crime Symposium. Academics and researchers will share papers on topics that range from the return of taonga through the treaty settlement process to how to repatriate stolen and problematic artefacts and specimens. Delivering a paper on repatriation will be art crime expert Arthur Tompkins. I spoke to him and a fellow expert, author and member of the New Zealand Art Crime Research Trust, Penelope Jackson. She says repatriation as a theme was an obvious one. You know, New Zealand's pretty much at the forefront of repatriation, returning, etc. But it's also very complex. So the kind of the more that we can talk about it and the more that we can hear from people working in different organizations the better and it just seemed right Um, I mean I'm really pleased this is our theme this year instantly when I think about repatriation the first example I thought of was the Mona Lisa in 1911 which was stolen by an Italian man who was dressed up as a worker at the Louvre and he believed that he was repatriating the Mona Lisa back to Florence its rightful home so that's kind of one idea of how repatriation has been I mean, of course, what he was doing was, you know, he he stole it, you know, it was illegal, but he believed he was repatriating. It was the right thing to do. And more recently, earlier this year, a new museum, Purpose Book Museum, has opened in New South Wales at a place called Bundanon. And it holds the Arthur Boyd's collection, a great Australian artist. The collection is valued somewhere like $40 million. And They nearly lost that collection with the bushfires a couple of summers ago. So it is now, and this is how they describe it, it has been repatriated to a purpose-built museum where it is safe. So that's kind of the, you know, extremities. And then in amongst there, you've got the Parthenon marbles, of course. Um, You know, that's been an ongoing debate, a global debate that everyone has a, you know, say about. And just recently, uh, George Osborne, the the chair of the British Museum said, look, we could make 3D copies out of pentallic marble so that we could have, you know, a set at the British Museum in London and a set in Athens on the Acropolis Museum. It's a huge repatriation conversation. One of the other things to think about is the repatriation from our institutions like museums to iwi. Uh, and I think this is coming up for discussion. Yeah, yes, well, repatriation of colonial era artifacts is a current topic of conversation right around the world and uh, I think there's a a realization pretty universal now that a lot of of those items were essentially stolen and that they should be returned and they should be returned in a way in which the return happens to the right people, which is not always a straightforward exercise. One of the classic case studies that I talk about in the paper I'll be giving is the journey of the four horses of the Basilica San Marco in Venice. And there are a number of places where they could in theory, be repatriated to, or they could simply stay where they are now, depending on the view taken of their very long history, because they started probably somewhere in the Mediterranean, they ended up in Rome, then they went to Constantinople, modern Istanbul, 
then they went to Venice, then they went to Paris, then they went back to Venice, uh, where they still are. But it's kind of hard sometimes to get your head around that because in each of those places, they stayed for several centuries. But it makes repatriation quite a, a difficult exercise, uh, making sure you pick the right people to which items should be returned. So sometimes it's very straightforward, other times it's not. I get a sense you found this fascinating. It's more the moral issue. It, it really should be determined by uh, the moral claims rather than the strictly legal claims, because so often legal claims are determined by uh, a legal system which is a product of the then current environment. Whereas the moral claim uh, is something really quite different. There's been um, just in, in the last few months a change in the law in Europe to allow, uh, in England, to allow the United Kingdom institutions to take proper regard of the moral claim. And that's where I think the touchstone is that's the lodestone. Who has, where does the moral claim reside? when we're looking at returning these items. Well, Penelope, though, I see uh, Rod Thomas, another of the speakers from AUT, is going to be talking about the good faith buyer defence. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a fascinating area because that's, you know, when an institution or a museum acquires a work in, I guess, in, in not in good faith. In other words, they haven't checked the provenance. They've purchased a work from someone who didn't actually own it. So what then happens? What is the right thing to do legally? And as Arthur has just said, morally, closer to home, I'm thinking about Te Papa. A while ago, they acquired 36 drawings by Carl Sim. They were actually signed Petrus van der Velde, and they were acquired as Petrus van der Velde. They were authenticated as van der Velden's. And then, of course, there was the court case, and he's well, he was convicted of fraud, and they were found, of course, to be by him, not van der Velden. Now, they are still into Papa's collection. Anyone can go online and have a look at them. And the problem with those is that, of course, everyone knows they're by Carlson now. Even if to Papa deaccessioned them, you know, they couldn't morally put them back out there onto the open market because, you know, what happens in a few generations' time if someone looks at one of those drawings and they see it's signed by Petrus van der Velden because it's not signed by Carl Sim, you know, you're perpetuating something, you know, that is immoral here. And so that kind of comes around to the conversation about deaccessioning because to repatriate and to return an object you have to deaccession from a collection. And that is something that doesn't happen that often. And it's a really difficult, complex thing to do. In the last couple of decades, uh, museums especially are far more careful about, especially what they uh, receive in terms of gifts, et cetera, of objects, because, you know, what happens if you want to then get rid of them? And um, to deaccession an object is quite a, a long process. You have to basically prove that it is no longer relevant to the collection. 
um, that is not perhaps in a good condition or it's not exhibitable. It just doesn't, you know, sit with the, the other objects. You have to, you have a collections policy and you go through that. And if there's a work that doesn't fit and you, you know, have to go through this process, then you have to offer it back to, say if it was a gift, offer it back to the person who gave it. They might be dead. So then you have to find their relatives, etc. So it is quite complex in terms of decessioning and we're going to hear from a the registrar actually from MOTAT Freya Elmer and she's going to talk to us about decessioning art objects from the Walsh Library at MOTAT that have little or no relevance to technology or transport and you know some of our larger museums have been I guess repositories for a whole lot of objects that really are never displayed or they just don't have a purpose, you know, a role in that collection. So getting back to, to return objects to repatriate them, they have to also be deaccessioned out of a collection. So that's something else that we're going to be addressing at the symposium. Arthur, I, when, when I was thinking about this interview, I, I went back in my memory to the opening of the Musée du Quai Bromley in, in Paris, and they had journalists like me from around the world coming for the opening of this museum and I was alongside quite a few journalists from the Pacific and they were looking at these taonga, these treasures and some of them had tears in their eyes saying, you know, I've never seen these I mean, really culturally significant important works you know, and saying that they had to travel to the other side of the world to, to see these works some of them though in conversation also went on to say but the thing is, we couldn't care for them at home, we don't have the facilities at home and it was you know, I found that really bewildering and, and heartbreaking in so many ways. Yes, I think what you're seeing there is the kind of head-on collision between the idea of the Universal Museum and there are sort of handful of museums, art museums around the world that would uh, fit into that category where the argument goes that we, the British Museum, uh, or the Louvre, or the Metropolitan Museum, want to have a universal collection or representatives of everything so that uh, when people come to visit us, they can see everything. The colliding concept is that when those items have been taken, particularly during the colonial era, Colonialism has had such an effect that the home countries have been unable to put in place the infrastructure properly to care for those. So the argument always been, and it was always made uh, about the Parthenon sculptures. We shouldn't return them because there's nowhere in Greece that they can properly go, nowhere in Athens that they can properly go. Uh, and that argument was well and truly rejected uh, with the opening of the Acropolis Museum. But it's still, you still hear that argument. It's in a sense, metaphorically, like somebody who has a car stolen and the thief says, well, I've got a better garage than you, so I can look after it better, so I should get to keep it. Uh, which is an argument would never, which would never wash in any other context. And following on from that, if you return the items, then that provides the basis upon which the infrastructural 
properly to care for them can be put in place because the items have been returned. It can be a bit circular, but I, I think the idea of the Universal Museum has is well past its use-by date. Arthur mentioned Italy. There's been a bit of criticism in, in recent times that Italy's been trying to uh, scope and claim back lots of objects that have gone offshore over the last few centuries. But people have questioned, well, where are they going to put them and can they care for them? Because, you know, on the one hand, they're asking for everything to be returned. But on the other hand, they're actually asking um, for private funding to help restore, say, the Colosseum and a whole lot of objects and buildings because they just haven't got the budget. So people are worried that they might get all these objects back, but they can't actually care for them or maintain them. Um, and that's an, another whole aspect of these issues. And sometimes that's the reason for deaccessioning objects too, is that you can't store them, you can't afford the insurance, and you just can't maintain them. Um, so, you know, and you, if you're not using them, then perhaps find another home. New Zealand institutions, I mean, the focus for the last few years now has been on the return of Tonga to Aotearoa, New Zealand. But we will have objects in our collections that perhaps should be returned internationally. Some of that has happened. Can we expect more of that to happen? I think so. And I think that's what I really have enjoyed about researching this is that it's, you know, it's a two-way flow. Just yeah, a couple of weeks ago, within days of each other, there were two wonderful cases. One was the eventual return of the carvings that were on the meeting house at Himitahi that went to Surrey in England, to Clandon Park in 1876, I think. And this was the meeting house where people sheltered when um, Tarawiru erupted. So it's highly significant, culturally significant, amazing. So we're going to get those back. But with, within a few days of hearing that news, there was a lovely item in the media about Otago Museum returning seven objects to the people, the Indigenous people of Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory in Australia. And they were boomerang and ads and knives and things like that. And what was really, I think, empowering about that story was that they are going straight on to display. They know where they're going. It's that what Arthur was talking about, you know, where are these objects going? Because that is part of the kind of the package deal that, yes, you can return, but what's at, at the other end? And, you know, there's a, a plan in place for these seven objects. So it was a really heartening story. It's not just us taking objects back or wanting objects. It's also, it, it does work both ways. Arthur, you mentioned colonisation. I was just thinking some of the, the great collectors whose collections gifted to Aotearoa institutions have been the foundation. So um, Governor Gray, Hock and Turnbull, for example, are all our institutions going to have to go through this process, do you think, of going through object by object and really thinking about morally the best place for these? Um, I, I think they should. The operative word is there is should, uh, whether they can do it will inevitably be determined by the resources, the limited resources they have to allocate it. And of course, if you're allocating resources to provenance research, then those are resources that you can't allocate to displays or exhibitions. But the questions of provenance and moral questions as to the uh, collections held are now front and centre of almost all major institutions 
uh, around the world. And it's something which uh, major uh, institutions and their curators are now accepting as just part of their day-to-day operations that they need to do this work. Our institutions, our museums and these, you know, the colonial collectors, I think, you know, it's a very good point that, yes, of course they should, but it all comes down to priorities and resources. The good thing is, though, that there's great acknowledgement that these conversations need to be had, and they are being had. And, you know, there there are teams, national services at Te Papa, you know, they've got a repatriation team, and they go around and they're workshopping with people all the time, you know, with, with the museums. So these conversations are being had, and that's the first step, you know. Uh, they're not just ignoring it any longer. And so, yes, it might be the right thing to do, but it always comes down to resourcing and even people coming through museum studies etc it's not something that we're ignoring or hoping will go away it is being addressed and it is being acknowledged and that's what of course part of the work that we do with our trust as well with our annual symposium. Arthur is where does the law stand on this in Aotearoa? The basic law is that possession or right to recover movable items so artworks is determined by the law of the country where they are located for the time being, as opposed to um, real estate, which is always determined by the law of where the land is and which doesn't move. But if an item moves, then uh, if you want to recover it, you have to go to the country where it is in order to recover it. So that's how you determine which law applies to the recovery of uh, movable art. Complicated, isn't it? I mean, one of the things I was thinking of was the uh, art stolen by the Nazis, and that again has been very high profile over the last few decades, trying to get the art restored to the family. And if we go back to that, that idea of perhaps good faith buyer who hadn't, didn't realise the provenance, didn't do, didn't do their research, mm. very difficult. Have we learned lessons from that whole process? Well, there are, there are basically two kind of fundamental rules. In the common law, which applies in New Zealand, a thief cannot give better title than the thief had. So as between the original owner and somebody who has bought a piece of artwork, even in good faith, if it was originally stolen and the person who has ended up with it may have no reason to know that, uh, nevertheless, the, the New Zealand law and the common law would say that the original owner gets to recover it. The European countries, the civil law countries that derive their legal systems from essentially the Napoleonic Code, takes exactly the opposite approach, that if you have uh, met the requirements of a good faith purchase without knowledge of any prior crime being involved, then you get to keep it. And those are two fundamentally irreconcilable approaches. Uh, and various attempts have been made to try to reconcile them, but they've all fallen down, uh, simply because you can't uh, reconcile them. Uh, so it does make for a very complicated legal situation. And that's why stolen art often re-emerges in countries where the legal system is uh, tends to be in favour of the ultimate possessor rather than the original dispossessed owner. 
Arthur Tompkins and Penelope Jackson, the 2022 Art Crime Symposium is on Saturday at City Gallery Wellington. Now, great news, there is a free ticket to the symposium for one of our listeners who'd like to go. Email artcrimenz at gmail.com at crimenz at gmail.com write in one sentence why you'd like to attend has to be in by 5pm on the 2nd of November 